Fiction 34 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 34. Volume 2. Chapter 16. The Voyage of the Fram. From the Bay of Wales to Buenos Aires. By First Lieutenant Thorvald Nilsson. The sea party consisted of the following ten men, Thorvald Nilsson, L. Hansen, H. Christensen, and J. Nodfed, H. F. Geertsen, A. Beck, M. Ron, A. Kutchin, and O. K. Sundbeck. The first four formed one watch, from eight to two, and the last five the other, from two to eight. Last but not least comes K. Olsen, Cook. Having made ready for sea, we let go our moorings on the ice barrier at 9 a.m. on February the 15th, 1911. Hassel, Wisting, Bjarland, and Stuberud came down to see us off. As in the course of the last few days, the ice had broken up right to the end of the bay. We went as far south as possible to take a sounding. The shallowest we got was 155 and three-quarter fathoms, 285 metres. The bay ended in a ridge of ice on the east, which was continued in a northerly direction, so that at the spot where we were stopped by the barrier, we reached the most southerly point that a vessel can attain, so long as the barrier remains as it is now highest latitude seventy eight degrees forty one south when the terra nova was here her latitude and ours was seventy eight degrees thirty eight south the last two days before our departure had been calm and a thick dense sludge lay over the whole bay so dense was it that the fram lost her way altogether and we had to keep going ahead and astern until we came out into a channel seals by the hundred were lying on the floes but as we had a quantity of seals flesh we left them in peace for a change before the chief began the laying out of depots, I received from him the following orders. To First Lieutenant Thorvald Nilsson. With the departure of the Fram from the ice barrier, you will take over the command on board, in accordance with the plan we have mutually agreed upon. 1. You will sail direct to Buenos Aires, where the necessary repairs will be executed, provisions taken on board, and the crew completed. When this has been done. 2. You will sail from Buenos Aires to carry out oceanographical observations in the South Atlantic Ocean, it would be desirable if you could investigate the conditions between South America and Africa in two sections. These investigations must, however, be dependent on the prevailing conditions, and on the time at your disposal. When the time arrives, you will return to Buenos Aires, where the final preparations will be made for 3. Your departure for the ice barrier to take off the shore party. The sooner you can make your way into the barrier in 1912, the better. I mention no time, as everything depends on circumstances, and I leave it to you to act according to your judgment. In all else that concerns the interests of the expedition, I leave you entire freedom of action. If, on your return to the barrier, you should find that I am prevented by illness or death from taking over the leadership of the expedition, I place this in your hands, and beg you most earnestly to endeavour to carry out the original plan of the expedition, the exploration of the North Polar Basin. With thanks for the time we have spent together, and in the hope that when we meet again we shall have reached our respective goals, I am yours sincerely, Roald Amundsen. When Sir James Ross was in these waters for the first time in 1842, he marked appearance of land in longitude 160 degrees west and latitude about 78 degrees south. Afterwards, in 1902, Captain Scott named this land King Edward VII land. One of the Terra Nova's objects was to explore this land, but when we met the ship on February the 4th, they told us on board that on account of the ice conditions they had not been able to land. As no one had ever been ashore there, I thought it might be interesting to go and see what it looked like. Consequently, our course was laid north-eastward along the barrier. During the night, a thick sea-fog came on, and it was only now and then that we could see the barrier over our heads. All of a sudden, we were close upon a lofty iceberg, so that we had to put the helm hard over to go clear. 
The Fram steers splendidly, however, when she is in proper trim, and turns as if on a pivot, besides which it was calm. As the day advanced, the weather cleared more and more, and by noon it was perfectly clear. The sight that then met us was the lofty barrier to starboard, and elsewhere all round about some fifty icebergs, great and small. The barrier rose from about one hundred feet at its edge to something like one thousand two hundred feet. We followed the barrier for some distance, but in the neighbourhood of Cape Colbeck we met the drift ice, and as I had no wish to come between this and the barrier, we stood out in a north-westerly direction. There is, besides the disadvantage about a propeller like ours, that it is apt to wear out the brasses, so that these have to be renewed from time to time. It was imperative that this should be done before we came into the pack-ice, and the sooner the better. When, therefore, we had gone along the barrier for about a day and a half without seeing any bare land, we set our course northwest in open water, and after we had come some way out we got a slant of easterly wind, so that the sails could be set. We saw the snow-covered land and the glare above it all night. The date had not yet been changed, but as this had to be done it was changed on February the 15th. At noon on the 16th the propeller was lifted, and by the evening of the 17th the job was done, a record in spite of the temperature. Capital fellows to work are engineers. On the night of the 15th we saw the midnight sun, unfortunately for the last time. The same night something dark was sighted on the port bow. In that light it looked very like an islet. The sounding apparatus was got ready, and we who were on watch of course saw ourselves in our minds as great discoverers. I was already wondering what would be the most appropriate name to give it, but alas, the discovery became clearer, and the name, while it was a rather prosaic one, Dead Whale Islet, for it turned out to be a huge inflated whale that was drifting covered with birds. We went rather slowly northwestward under sail alone. On the morning of the 17th we saw ice blink on the starboard bow, and about noon we were close to the pack itself. It was here quite thick, and raised by pressure, so that an attempt to get through it was out of the question. We were, therefore, obliged to follow the ice to the west. Due aft we saw in the sky the same glare as above the great ice barrier, which may possibly show that the barrier turns towards the north and northwest, besides which the masses of pressure ice that collect here must go to show that it encounters an obstruction, probably the barrier. When we went out in 1912 the ice lay in exactly the same place and in the same way. Our course was still to the west along the pack ice, and it was not till the 20th that we could turn her nose northward again. For a change we now had a stiff breeze from the southeast with thick snow, so we got on very well. On the whole, the Fram goes much more easily through the water now than on the way south. Her bottom has probably been cleaned by the cold water and all the scraping against the ice, besides which we have no more than a third of the load with which we left Norway. On the night of the 20th we had to light the binnacle lamps again, and now the days grew rapidly shorter. It may possibly be a good thing to have dark nights on land, but at sea it ought always to be light, especially in these waters, which are more or less unknown and full of drifting icebergs. At 4 p.m. on the 22nd we entered the drift ice in latitude 70.5 degrees south, longitude 177.5 degrees east. The ice was much higher and uglier than when we were going south, but as there was nothing but ice as far as we could see both east and west, and it was fairly loose, we had to make the attempt where there seemed to be the best chance of getting through. The seals, which to the south of the ice had been following us in decreasing numbers, had now disappeared almost entirely, and curiously enough we saw very few seals in the pack. Luckily, however, Lieutenant Gjertsen's watch got three seals, and for a week we were able to enjoy seal beef, popularly known as crocodile beef, three times a day. Seal beef and fresh wortleberries, delicioso! We went comparatively well through the ice, though at night, from eleven to one, we had to slacken speed, as it was impossible to steer clear on account of the darkness, and towards morning we had a heavy fall of snow, so that nothing could be seen, and the engine had to be stopped. 
When it cleared, at about 9 a.m., we had come into a dam, out of which we luckily managed to turn fairly easily, coming out into a bay. This was formed by over a hundred icebergs, many of which lay in contact with each other, and had packed the ice close together. On the west was the outlet which we steered for, and by 10 p.m. on February the 23rd we were already out of the ice and in open water. Our latitude was then 69 degrees south, longitude 175.5 degrees east. It is very curious to find such calm weather in Ross Sea. In the two months we have been here we have hardly had a strong breeze. Thus, when I was relieved at 2 a.m. on the 25th, I wrote in my diary, It is calm, not a ripple on the water. The three men forming the watch walk up and down the deck. Now and then one hears the penguins cry, Kva, kva, but except these there is no other sound than the tuff-tuff of the motor, 220 times a minute. Ah, that motor! It goes unweariedly. It has now gone for 1,000 hours without being cleaned, while on our Atlantic cruise last year it stopped dead after going for 80 hours. Right over us we have the Southern Cross, all round glow the splendid southern lights, and in the darkness can be seen the gleaming outline of an iceberg. On the 26th we crossed the Antarctic Circle, and the same day the temperature both of air and water rose above 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It was with sorrow in our hearts that we ate our last piece of crocodile beef, but I hoped we should get a good many albatrosses, which we saw as soon as we came out of the ice. They were mostly the sooty albatross, that tireless bird that generally circles alone about the ship and is so difficult to catch, as he seldom tries to bite at the pork that is used as bait. When I saw these birds for the first time, as a deck-boy, I was told they were called parsons, because they were the souls of ungodly clergymen, who had to wait down here till doomsday without rest. More or less in our course to Cape Horn there are supposed to be two groups of islands, the Nimrod group in about longitude 158 degrees west, and Doherty Island in about longitude 120 degrees west. They are both marked D, doubtful, on the English charts. Lieutenant Shackleton's vessel, the Nimrod, Captain Davis, searched for both, but found neither. Doherty Island, however, is said to have been twice sighted. The Fram's course was therefore laid for the Nimrod group. For a time things went very well, but then we had a week of northerly winds, that is, head winds, and when at last we had a fair wind again, we were so far to the southeast of them that there was no sense in sailing back to the northwest to look for doubtful islands. It would certainly have taken us weeks. Consequently, our course was laid for Doherty Island. We had westerly winds for about two weeks, and were only two or three days sail from the island in question, when suddenly we had a gale from the northeast, which lasted for three days and ended in a hurricane from the same quarter. When this was over, we had come, according to dead reckoning, about eighty nautical miles to the southeast of the island. The heavy swell, which lasted for days, made it out of the question to attempt to go against it with the motor. We hardly had a glimpse of sun or stars, and weeks passed without our being able to get an observation, so that for that matter we might easily be a degree or two out in our reckoning. For the present, therefore, we must continue to regard these islands as doubtful. Moral, don't go on voyages of discovery, my friend, you're no good at it. As soon as we were out of Ross Sea and had entered the South Pacific Ocean, the old circus started again. In other words, the Fram began her everlasting rolling from one side to the other. When this was at its worst, and cups and plates were dancing the fandango in the galley, its occupant's only wish was, oh, to be in Buenos Aires. For that matter, it is not a very easy job to be cook in such circumstances, but ours was always in a good humour, singing and whistling all day long. How well the Fram understands the art of rolling is shown by the following little episode. One afternoon a couple of us were sitting drinking coffee on a toolbox that stood outside the galley. As ill luck would have it, during one of the lurches the lashing came loose and the box shot along the deck. 
Suddenly it was checked by an obstacle, and one of those who were sitting on it flew into the air, through the galley door, and dashed past the cook with a splendid tiger's leap until he landed face downwards at the other end of the galley, still clinging like grim death to his cup, as though he wanted something to hold on to. The face he presented after this successful feat of aviation was extremely comical, and those who saw it had a hearty fit of laughter. As has already been said, we went very well for a time after reaching the Pacific, a fair wind for fourteen days together, and I began to hope that we were once more in what are called the westerlies. However, nothing is perfect in this world, and we found that out here, as we had icebergs every day and were constantly bothered by snow squalls or fog. The former were, of course, to be preferred, as it was at any rate clear between the squalls, but fog is the worst thing of all. It sometimes happened that all hands were on deck the whole night to work the ship at a moment's notice, and there were never less than two men on the lookout forward. The engine, too, was always ready to be started instantly. A little example will show how ready the crew were at any time. One Sunday afternoon, when Hansen, Christensen, and I were on watch, the wind began to draw ahead so that we had to beat. It was blowing quite freshly, but I did not want to call the watch below, as they might need all the sleep they could get, and Hansen and I were about to put the ship about. Christensen was steering, but gave us a hand when he could leave the wheel. As the ship luffed up into the wind and the sails began to flap pretty violently, the whole of the watch below suddenly came rushing on deck in nothing but their unmentionables and started to haul. Chance willed it that at the same moment an iceberg came out of the fog right in front of our bows. It was not many minutes either before we were on the other tack, and the watch below did not linger long on deck. With so few clothes on, it was no pleasure to be out in that cold, foggy air. They slept so lightly then that it took no more noise than that to wake them. When I afterwards asked one of them, I think it was Beck, what made them think of coming up, he replied that they thought we were going to run into an iceberg and were trying to get out of the way. It has happened at night that I have seen the ice blink as far off as eight miles, and then there is nothing to fear, but sometimes in the middle of the day we have sailed close to icebergs that have only been seen a few minutes before we were right on them. As the voyage was long, we sailed as fast as we could as a rule, but on two or three nights we had to reduce our way to a minimum, as we could not see much further than the end of the bowsprit. After two or three weeks sailing, the icebergs began gradually to decrease, and I hoped we should soon come to the end of them. But on Sunday, March the 5th, when it was fairly clear, we saw about midday a whole lot of big bergs ahead. One of the watch below, who had just come on deck, exclaimed, "'What the devil is this beastly mess you fellows have got into?' He might well ask, for in the course of that afternoon we passed no less than about a hundred bergs. They were big tabular bergs, all of the same height, about one hundred feet, or about as high as the crow's nest of the Fram. The bergs were not the least worn, but looked as if they had carved quite recently. As I said, it was clear enough. We even got an observation that day, latitude 61 degrees south, longitude 150 degrees west, and as we had a west wind, we twisted quite elegantly past one iceberg after another. The sea, which during the morning had been high enough for the spray to dash over the tops of the bergs, gradually went down, and in the evening, when we were well to leeward of them all, it was as smooth as if we had been in harbour. In the course of the night we passed a good many more bergs, and the next day we only saw about twenty. In the various descriptions of voyages in these waters, opinions are divided as to the temperature of the water falling in the neighbourhood of icebergs. That it falls steadily as one approaches the pack ice is certain enough, but whether it falls for one or a few scattered icebergs no doubt depends on circumstances. One night, at twelve o'clock, we had a temperature in the water of 34.1 degrees Fahrenheit, at 4 a.m. 33.8 degrees Fahrenheit, and at 8 a.m. 33.6 degrees Fahrenheit. At 6 a.m. we passed an iceberg. At twelve noon, the temperature had risen to 33.9 degrees Fahrenheit. In this case, one might say that the temperature gave warning, but as a rule, in high latitudes, it has been constant both before and after passing an iceberg. 
On Christmas Eve 1911, when on our second trip southward we saw the first real iceberg, the temperature of the water fell in four hours from 35.6 degrees Fahrenheit to 32.7 degrees Fahrenheit, which was the temperature when the bergs were passed, after which it rose rather rapidly to 35 degrees Fahrenheit. In the west wind belt, I believe, one can tell with some degree of certainty when one is approaching ice. In the middle of November 1911, between Prince Edward Island and the Crozet Islands, about latitude 47 degrees south, the temperature fell. Towards morning I remarked to someone, the temperature of the water is falling as if we were getting near the ice. On the forenoon of the same day we sailed past a very small berg, the temperature again rose to the normal, and we met no more ice until Christmas Eve. On Saturday, March the 4th, the day before we met that large collection of bergs, the temperature fell pretty rapidly from 33.9 degrees Fahrenheit to 32.5 degrees Fahrenheit. We had not then seen ice for nearly 24 hours. At the same time, the colour of the water became unusually green, and it is possible that we had come into a cold current. The temperature remained as low as this till Sunday morning, when at 8 a.m. it rose to 32.7 degrees Fahrenheit, at 12 noon, close to a berg, to 32.9 degrees Fahrenheit, and a mile to lee of it, to 33 degrees Fahrenheit. It continued to rise, and at 4 p.m., when the bergs were thickest, it was 33.4 degrees Fahrenheit, at 8 p.m., 33.6 degrees Fahrenheit, and at midnight, 33.8 degrees Fahrenheit. If there had been a fog, we should certainly have thought we were leaving the ice instead of approaching it. It is very curious, too, that the temperature of the water should not be more constant in the presence of such a great quantity of ice, but, as I have said, it may have been a current. In the course of the week following March the 5th, the bergs became rarer, but the same kind of weather prevailed. Our speed was irreproachable, and in one day's work, from noon to noon, we covered a distance of 200 nautical miles, or an average of about 82 knots an hour, which was the best day's work the Fram had done up to that time. The wind, which had been westerly and northwesterly, went by degrees to the north, and ended in a hurricane from the northeast on Sunday, March the 12th. I shall quote here what I wrote about this in my diary on the 13th. Well, now we have experienced the first hurricane on the Fram. On Saturday afternoon, the 11th, the wind went to the northeast as an ordinary breeze with rain. The barometer had been steady between 29.29 inches, 744 millimetres, and 29.33 inches, 745 millimetres. During the afternoon it began to fall, and at 8 p.m. it was 29.25 inches, 743 millimetres, without the wind having freshened at all. The outer jib was taken in, however. By midnight the barometer had fallen to 29.0 inches, 737 millimetres, and while the wind had increased to a stiff breeze, we took in the foresail, mainsail, and inner jib, and had now only the topsail and a storm trysail left. The wind gradually increased to a gale. At 4 a.m. on Sunday, the barometer had fallen again to 28.66 inches, 728 millimetres, and at 6 a.m. the topsail was made fast. The wind increased and the seas ran higher, but we did not ship much water. At 8 a.m. the barometer was 28.30 inches, 719 millimetres, and at 9 a.m. 28.26 inches, 718 millimetres, when at last it stopped going down and remained steady till about noon, during which time a furious hurricane was blowing. The clouds were brown, the colour of chocolate. I cannot remember ever having seen such an ugly sky. Little by little the wind went to the north, and we sailed large under two storm trysails. Finally we had the seas on our beam, and now the Fram showed herself in all her glory as the best sea-boat in the world. It was extraordinary to watch how she behaved. Enormous seas came surging high to windward, and we, who were standing on the bridge, turned our backs to receive them, with some such remark as, "Ugh, oh, that's a nasty one coming. But the sea never came. A few yards from the ship it looked over the bulwarks and got ready to hurl itself upon her. 
but at the last moment the fram gave a wriggle of her body and was instantly at the top of the wave which slipped under the vessel can any one be surprised if one gets fond of such a ship then she went down with the speed of lightning from the top of the wave into the trough a fall of fourteen or fifteen yards when we sank like this it gave one the same feeling as dropping from the twelfth to the ground floor in an american express elevator as if everything inside you was coming up it was so quick that we seemed to be lifted off the deck we went up and down like this all the afternoon and evening till during the night the wind gradually dropped and it became calm that the storm would not be of long duration might almost be assumed from its suddenness and the english rule long foretold long last short notice soon passed may thus be said to have held good when there is a strong wind on her beam the frown does not roll so much as usual except for an occasional leeward lurch nor was any excessive quantity of water shipped in this boisterous sea the watch went below as usual when they were relieved and as somebody very truly remarked all hands might quite well have turned in if we had not had to keep a lookout for ice and fortune willed it that the day of the hurricane was the first since we had left the barrier that we did not see ice whether this was because the spray was so high that it hid our view or because there really was none be that as it may the main thing was that we saw no ice during the night we had a glimpse of the full moon which gave the man at the wheel occasion to call out hurrah and with good reason as we had been waiting a long time for the moon to help us in looking out for ice in weather like this one notices nothing out of the ordinary below deck here hardly anything is heard of the wind and in the after saloon which is below the water-line it is perfectly comfortable the cook who resides below therefore reckons ugly weather according to the motion of the vessel and not according to storms fog or rain on deck we do not mind much how it blows so long as it is only clear and the wind is not against us how little one hears below deck may be understood from the fact that yesterday morning while it was blowing a hurricane the cook went about as usual whistling his two verses of the whistling bowery boy while he was in the middle of the first i came by and told him that it was blowing a hurricane if he cared to see what it looked like oh yes he said i could guess it was blowing for the galley fire has never drawn so well the bits of coal are flying up the chimney and then he whistled through the second verse all the same he could not resist going up to sea it was not long before he came down again with a my word it is blowing and waves up to the sky no it was warmer and more cosy below among his pots and pans for dinner which was eaten as usual amid cheerful conversation we had green pea soup roast sirloin with a glass of aquavit and caramel pudding so it may be seen that the cook was not behindhand in opening tins even in a hurricane after dinner we enjoyed our usual sunday cigar while the canary which has become christensen's pet and hangs in his cabin sang at the top of its voice on march fourteenth we saw the last iceberg during the whole trip we had seen and passed between five hundred and six hundred bergs the wind held steady from the northeast for a week and a half and i was beginning to think we should be stuck down here to play the flying dutchman there was every possible sign of a west wind but it did not come on the night of the seventeenth it cleared light cirrus clouds covered the sky and there was a ring about the moon this together with the heavy swell and the pronounced fall of the barometer showed that something might be expected and sure enough on sunday march the nineteenth we were in a cyclone by manoeuvring according to the rules for avoiding a cyclone in the southern hemisphere we at any rate went well clear of one semicircle about four p m on sunday afternoon the barometer was down to twenty seven point five six inches seven hundred millimetres the lowest barometer reading i have ever heard of from noon to four p m there was a calm with heavy sea immediately after a gale sprang up from the northwest and in the course of a couple of days it slowly moderated to a breeze from the same quarter sunday march the fifth a hundred icebergs sunday march the twelfth a hurricane and sunday march the nineteenth a cyclone truly three pleasant days of rest the curves given on the next page which show the course of barometric pressure for a week from monday to monday are interesting 
By way of comparison, a third curve is given from the northeast trade, where there is an almost constant breeze and fine weather. On this trip, the fore saloon was converted into a sail loft, where Ron and Hansen carried on their work, each in his watch. The after saloon was used as a common mess room, as it is warmer, and the motion is far less felt than forward. From the middle of March, it looked as if the equinoctial gales were over, for we had quite fine weather all the way to Buenos Aires. Cape Horn was passed on March 31st in the most delightful weather, a light westerly breeze, not a cloud in the sky, and only a very slight swell from the west. Who would have guessed that such splendid weather was to be found in these parts, and that in March the most stormy month of the year? Lieutenant Gietzen and Kutchin collected plankton all the time, the latter smiled all over his face whenever he chanced to get one or two tadpoles in his tow-net. From the Falkland Islands onward the Fram was washed and painted, so that we might not present too polar an appearance on arrival at Buenos Aires. It may be mentioned as a curious fact that the snow with which we filled our water-tanks on the barrier did not melt till we were in the River La Plata, which shows what an even temperature is maintained in the Fram's hold. About midday on Easter Sunday we were at the mouth of the River La Plata, without seeing land, however. During the night the weather became perfect, a breeze from the south, moonlight and starry, and we went up the river by soundings and observations of the stars, until at 1 a.m. on Monday, when we had the Recalada lightship right ahead. We had not seen any light since we left Madeira on September the ninth. At 2.30 the same morning we got a pilot aboard, and at 7 in the evening we anchored in the roads of Buenos Aires. We had then been nearly once round the world, and for over seven months the anchor had not been out. We had reckoned on a two-months voyage from the ice, and it had taken us sixty-two days. End of section thirty-four.